But I could just imagine, you know, someone listening to this and thinking, well, that's kind of a scary God. Why do I want to worship that God if he's like so mad and he's going to send a, an army? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Enter the Bible podcast, where you can get answers or at least reflections on everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but were afraid to ask. I'm Katie Langston. And I'm Catherine Schifferdecker. And today uh, we have a special guest, my, my friend and colleague, Dick Nicey, who was a professor of Old Testament for many years at Luther Seminary, uh, now retired, and he's uh, graciously agreed to have a conversation with us about our question uh, for today, which is, why is there so much violence in the Bible? So thanks for coming to join us, Dick, and uh, thanks for, for participating in this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Good yeah. to have you here. Yeah. So why is there so much violence in the Bible? This is often a question that we get uh, in, in various forms, uh, mm-hmm. and it usually has to do with the Old Testament, because it's true that there, there's war in the Old Testament, there's uh, conquest of the Promised Land, there's um, descriptions of, of plagues uh, that, that God sends when the people sin. Uh, but Flood. Flood, God wipes, yeah. wipes everyone out. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's a legitimate question, and it's a common question, mm. again, particularly about the Old Testament. So that's where we're going to concentrate. So there are obviously some instances in the New Testament as well, but we're going to talk mostly about Old Testament. So uh, how would you begin to approach that question, Dick? Well, first of all, as an Old Testament teacher, I get kind of defensive, and I'd like to get a laundry list of uh, violence and uh, strife and conflict in the New Testament. Yes, it is and not once, just one once, Testament, you guys. Once you God's get past the, one, once you get past the kind of uh, cliche that the Old Testament is violent and the New Testament is gracious and loving, once you put on a different pair of glasses, you actually see far more of it in the New Testament than you're accustomed to if you're working with that little cliche yeah, mm-hmm. sure, uh, sure. division. There's all kinds of strife in Corinthians. It yeah. might be microviolence instead of uh, uh, macroviolence, but it's still violent yeah. disruption yeah. and fracturing of the human community. Yeah, for well, sure. And so, Revelation is pretty. Yeah, has some Revelation pretty is a nice capstone well. to all yeah. of that language. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the, back to the real question, instead of evading it with those initial comments, <laughs> uh, I would say the shortest answer to say that is, why is there so much violence in the Bible? It's because there's so much violence in the world. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the Bible addresses the world that is. So that's what is it doing about it? And uh, what is its reaction to it and what is its assessment of it? But it's this world. Yeah. So when we say Christ died for the world, it's this world. Yeah, this violent world. It's this violent world. Filled with hate. and Filled with conflict. hate and casualties and uh, yeah. loads of casualties. So yeah. It's not, and unfortunately, often the, the innocent or the, the, the vulnerable, at least. Uh, absolutely. The yeah. powerful always uh, have at least the first part of it, uh, the wounds are directed to the less powerful. Yeah. Uh, it may come around to uh, disrupting them, but not initially right. by any means. So if God's going to be engaged in the world, then this is the world. Yeah. Mm. If the word became flesh, 
<laughs> the flesh is this violent world. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's our human embodiment. So in a sense, the violence, I, I like that a lot. The, I mean, I like your answer. The, the, there's so much violence in the Bible because the Bible is about the world and the world is Yeah, is it's it, yeah. the real world. It's yeah, not a Pollyanna picture of the world. Right. God doesn't, uh, despite maybe our expectations, that God enters only a kind of beneficent, kindly, gentle Sunday morning congregation. No, God enters the world, and yeah. this is it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I so, think, oh, I, well, another way to say that, I suppose, would be that the, the Bible describes the world as it is. It doesn't prescribe, it doesn't say what the world should be in in the sense of the violence, right? That it's some, at least some, or a lot of the violence that the Bible that's in the Bible is descriptive. It's talking about... Yeah, it's talking about... Yeah. It's experienced yeah. rather than yeah. arguing a position on violence right. or a position on pacifism right. or a position on... It's not arguing for a position. It's talking about what's being experienced. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But aren't there instances where it does really feel as if God is either condoning violence or if God is the one who is enacting the violence? Like, you know, sort of... Your point about how, you know, in this world, the world as it is, the most powerful kind of prey upon those who are more vulnerable. And I can just hear in the back of my mind someone like shouting at their phone or their headphones <laughs> as they're listening to this. But isn't God the most powerful of all? And why would God do that to, to human beings? Why, why is there God-sanctioned violence in the Bible? Because I think you're right that there's instances where it's not God-sanctioned, it's just like dealing with the reality that is. But there are also really troubling instances where it reads as if God is kind of like making it happen. Mm -hmm. None of those, however, and I want to address that question, but none of those, however, lead to a mandate for human conduct of the same sort. Hmm. So that, that the Violence uh, is it really, you know, you have very few passages when you take the whole of the Old Testament where God says, I need recruits. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not evoking yeah. the human community to go out and enlist. Yeah. Um, you might get that in Joshua. Well, it was going to mm-hmm. say, but, except in Joshua. Right. But that, again, is there. When you start reading Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it's not a call for enlistees. In these in these battles, in fact, there are plenty of them that are volunteering all the time. Babylonians, Assyrians, oppressive kings. Uh, there are no end to volunteers. <laughs> so, what might there be? Uh, uh, what is the role? Is it God simply allowing? And I think you're pressing the question. A lot of the language goes beyond allowing. Yeah. Such a word. I'm sending right the foe to mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Now that's different in recruiting Israel to be the enemy. Okay. Yeah. So you but, just, but I'm uh, sending. Just, to, just to clarify, Dick, for those who don't know this, that there are passages in the prophets, in particular, where God sends the Babylonians yeah. uh, or the Assyrians to punish Israel for, yeah. for their sins. Yeah. God Go doesn't just say, "Well, that's too bad that happened." <laughs> yeah. Uh, tough luck or whatever stuff like that. No, there is the direct language. But then you also get in those prophetic uh, books the oracles against the nations, hmm. where the nations that were the executioner 
are judged for their executing act. So I think you get this picture that God sends as one way to present it to Israel. But when you turn around to the Babylonian, God's having sent doesn't get them off the hook for their violence. They're doing what they are accustomed to doing. They're doing what empires do. Those empires expand, oppress. That's what they do. So there come the oracles of the nations that God cannot endure that evil either, even though it gets unleashed. So there's always the who's being addressed and at what point is a, is a major consideration. So the taking into the context, I think one way to think about it, as a reader, where am I, where am I invited to imagine myself echoing the narrative? Hmm. What conduct of mine echoes the narrative? And where am I situated? If I'm situated in the, uh, in the recipient of Babylonian violence, it's an occasion for looking around and saying, what have I done? What have we done? What have we... An, an occasion you know, for repentance. Or, repentance, yeah. certainly, yeah. of, of um, recognizing the he- evil, the destructiveness that you've been engaged in, and this is, it's coming back on you. Yeah. And God's involved in that. God's involved in that because God isn't apart from it. But you'd have to say, is it this or is it is it the Babylonian just doing what a Babylonian does or is God sending the Babylonians? And the answer would be yes. To both. To both. It's yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> There's yeah, not yeah. an either yeah. or. It's a yes. Huh. Both and. Yeah. The language doesn't separate itself. So from Israel— the occasion of the Babylonians doing what the Babylonians do is a time for repentance hmm. and submitting to the judgment that's being visited upon you. There's so, this, I, I, I find that really helpful, Dick. And I, I think about us saying, I think Annie, Anne Lamott said this, but I think she got it from someone else, that we are punished not so much for our sin as by our sin, right? That that violence begets violence, that, that sin begets sin, and that, and that God has structured the world in such a way that, um, that, that it's a both end, yeah, as you and, say, and, right? And to use a language like it's structured the world that way, yeah. the problematic part of that can be that God kind of set it up and now it's just kind of letting True, it right, play yeah. itself out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the Bible's language gets a little more intense than that. No, you're right. Yep. It, it, it is. That's how life is. And yeah. <laughs> that's how God is enforcing it yeah, yeah, as yeah. well. And then they move to the laments Yeah. quickly saying, how long, O Lord? We are your children. We are your creation. How can you endure this? Yeah. And then you end up not with an explanation— of this double statement, yeah. but petitioning. Yeah. So I often think what the Old Testament does is it doesn't explain it. It moves to petition yeah. very quickly. I think that's really challenging, though, right? Like that invites us into an imagination of God that, you know, can be kind of scary, to be honest, right? Like, not just, like, your buddy-buddy, <laughs> you know, best friend yeah. Jesus, but that there 
that there actually is some danger and some anger. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like, from the from 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 God, right? Some right. some that, that God is somehow dangerous. God can be angry. Um, God can do things that seem disproportionate, perhaps. Um, and I think that that really challenges us um, to to wrestle with our faith and our understanding of God in ways that I don't know that our culture is necessarily super equipped to do. I like what you're saying about how, you know, how how the the texts don't necessarily explain the violence, but respond to it. Um, but I could just imagine, you know, someone listening to this and thinking, well, that's kind of a scary God. Why do I want to worship that God if he's like so mad and he's going to send a, an army? Well, I think we have to get the difficulty of that moment, but that is the lament moment. Hmm. That is where the laments are not just primal screams or palate, you know, palate vent it and get it out of your system. Those are real drama. Hmm. If God does not respond, there's nothing but despair. Uh, the book of Lamentations ends up, or have you rejected us forever? Mm-hmm. It poses that question. And, and that, that means, I think, uh, much of our spiritual talk in, the, in, our, in our present culture is so impoverished. It doesn't go to the darkness. It just wants a, some saccharine coating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. over the top, and then it keeps needing to hear this saccharine uh, coating over and over and over, an insatiable appetite for a spiritual quest of one sort or another yeah. instead of hearing the de- declaration, evil will end. Now, the problem of residing between the promise and its reality, that's there for Christians too. We wait for Christ to return. Right. We, Easter has occurred, then why the heck so much death? Right, exactly. Yeah. We yeah. live in Holy Saturday between the crucifixion and Easter. That's where we live. In the in-between space between the... And that means a space where we don't have the answers, where we see the darkness and we petition. Yeah. Much more fervent petitioning than what we do. Even in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Yeah. Because this sure as heck isn't it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think that deliver I, us from evil. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I right. Mean, yeah. Yeah. Those are petitions, and we tend to just, you know, waft that over as if it were some sugar pill. I think, like, from sort of a like, say, kind of wealthier white, you know, kind of perspective, that really doesn't resonate. <laughs> and and you're absolutely right that, um, you know that that I think. The, the spiritual impulses of our culture in particular, say in the West, uh, tend to be um, to try to pretend or bypass suffering and hurt and pain and trauma uh, and, and to imagine as if it isn't actually happening, right? You think like mm-hmm. the law of attraction or positive thinking or right, I'm right. going to, you know, will or make this good thing happen with my rugged individualism and how kind of that's the, 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 the impulse that our culture draws us into. But if you look at writings and prayers and theologies of peoples who have been oppressed, 
um, and who do know suffering in a way that we, I think, don't know it, mm-hmm. um, kind of, you know, societal level, you know, oppression and violence and death and that sort of thing. Um, it's hard for us to access that sometimes, but other people's, yeah, I think certainly can. Christians of the global south, for instance, exactly. uh, where the church is growing by leaps and bounds. Yeah, I think it's important, and and this has been, I think, implicit in what we've been talking about, but it's important to to state it outright that that the the this is the literature of ancient Israel, right? And ancient Israel is never the empire or very rarely the empire you know maybe under solomon and david to you know for for a few decades for but second, yeah. it's uh it it's i've heard scholars say that, uh, and i agree that that israel ancient israel is more like guatemala than it is like the united states mm-hmm. or like china right it's never the empire it's actually this tiny country caught in between empires egypt on the one side uh, and mesopotamia on the other babylonia and assyria and so uh, uh, I think it's it's I, I find it really poignant what you how you put it, Dick. That um, you know this these people know the darkness, right? They know suffering, and so this these stories and these prayers and the lament comes out of a place uh, of real suffering. Uh, that that I think you're right, Katie. We as Western white Christians, uh, at least the three of us here mm-hmm. in the booth, right, mm-hmm. and probably many of those listening to us. We we don't know that uh, most of us, at least in in the same way. Mm-hmm. So these may strike us as as um, harsh, but it but it's 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 the world out of which they come. But I think when you read at least prophetic preaching, you see that that was no more um, uh, that business of not being prepared for this hmm. darkness is all over the audience. That's the silent the prophet. Mm-hmm. This speaker of bad words, peace, peace, where there is no peace, yeah. is because the audience wants to hear mm. the smooth words is one of yeah. the expressions yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the Old Testament. You want smooth words. You don't want the sharp words. So the prophets experienced uh, in their contemporary time, you know, in the uh, lots of opposition to these words uh, yeah. as well on the power on the part of the powerful. Mm-hmm. So the attention to the widow and the orphan and the sojourner in midst meant uh, uh, the urging of that meant there was a good s- substantial part of the social structure that wasn't doing that. Mm-hmm. And it had its own maybe compared to our um, wealth being being kind of puny and just a small little pocket in the middle of the big, big, big wealth. Yeah. But it had its tearing yeah. in society just like we do, and the upper did not upper part of that tiering did not want to hear the words that the uh, support structures are starting to collapse. Yeah, yeah. So the judgment then, uh, you know, we 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 could phrase this question not so much, uh, not just about violence, but about anger. Right? Why is God angry? What makes God angry in the Bible and particularly in the Old Testament? Well, it's neglect of the or- orphan, the neglect of the widow, neglect of the... And not yeah. maybe not even just neglect, but oppression of those vulnerable people in society. Well, even a word like anger, I mean, it brings up another consideration, and that is that they, the Bible, has, as our own speech, uh, as human speech, as, and writing and communication, 
can only express itself in the metaphors we know. And what is that? You know, hmm. would you say, God disapproved? <laughs> uh, it's kind of flat. <laughs> so let's get that dynamic. Well, God was angry. Hmm. Well, anger is a human emotion, and it becomes a metaphor for God. It, what language shall we borrow <laughs> except what we know? Yeah. This, yeah, yeah. So I think that kind of absolutizing that is sometimes to forget that it's a metaphor. Mm. It's the, it's using human language to communicate, and inevitably it's going to be limited if it's talking about the divine. It's, it's, yeah. it's the language we got. So, so we don't have any other language right. that, that this, to express uh, unless we, we want to go to com- complete but, abstractions like right. disapproval. Right. right, which sounds like a, a school marmer. Right. Yeah. How yeah. dare you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, but but you're right. That is the language we have, and the Bible talks about you know God being angry. So, but to get to clarify why is God angry? Well, I think I want to go back to something that you said, Katie. Right? We as a culture, we want to think about God as affirming and mm-hmm. loving, and 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 God is a loving, right? And and you use the word saccharine, Dick. But but love is not the only characteristic of God, <laughs> according to Scripture, right? God is also holy. God is also just, right? God is concerned with justice. So, and and you, you've said this before and written about this before, Dick, but if, if God is a God of justice, then how do we expect God to respond when injustice happens, right? Is, is God a God of justice if God doesn't do anything about injustice? No, and and even the love. I mean, the love is directed uh, particularly to the vulnerable, yes. who have no other option, right? Uh, or you know, are in a weak position. So, why would look at again how the God's anger functions? Right. It functions as one form of of being loving to the oppressed exactly. by removing their oppression. Exactly. So now we're not customary. We tend to go to the language of justice instead of the language of love. But those at that point aren't separable. Mm-hmm. God is jealous for Israel. Well, jealous is a word we just say, the Lord your God is a jealous God. But when you get to the prophets, it's God's jealousy for God's people that lead God to Overturn the exile mm. and overturn the judgment, not let Babylon be eternal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, for a minute, for a moment, Isaiah 54, for a moment I was angry. You know, God concedes <laughs> the negative portrayal. I did that for a moment, but I cannot let that be permanent. Mm-hmm. There's God's passion. Mm-hmm. For Israel, for the poor, for the ones, even God's passion for the judged, mm-hmm. finally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think something that happens that, you know, that <laughs> that causes a lot of harm is that we take these texts sort of in isolation or sometimes feel as if therefore because it's in the text we are therefore authorized to enact the judgment ourselves Mm -hmm. 
But actually what's happening is that God is doing it and it we don't therefore have the dispensation to go. <laughs> you know, God hasn't said, I'm angry, therefore Yeah, God doesn't you. recruit, as you yeah, said. Exactly. Earlier. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so those times in which these texts are used by powerful people in order to justify their own violence, they're not under they're reading it wrong. They're not yes. understanding that they are actually the the you know, they're the actually Egypt. They're right. actually Babylon. Yeah. Um and they will you know, face that kind of judgment. Yeah. Uh, which yeah, is a it, word of hope for those who it, are in that who are sense, vulnerable. Um, I would I would just use a little uh, quickie thing that if you're gonna take yourself as called to enact the uh, bringing down the walls of Jericho, first of all, they didn't do a darn thing. They went around blue horns. <laughs> yeah. So I mean uh, the lethalness of their power mm. was probably was not exactly evident. But if you want to appropriate the walls of Jericho going down or the Joshua roll, recognize you're going to end up canonically and biblically with Second Kings 25 and the walls of Jerusalem go- collapsing. Hmm. So you don't get Jericho without Jerusalem canonically. Hmm. So that when you're liberated, the potential of you becoming the new oppressor is always in front of you. Yeah. So that the uh, powerful should take little comfort in their power, uh, this this side of the coming of the whole the kingdom of God, uh, in its fullness, yeah. we always can slip in that other role, pretty fast. Hmm. And a theme then that God fights for the God fights for. You can even collect the places where it's a direct metaphor. God is a warrior. Yeah. Even in those places, um, very quickly the language of God fights for us can turn into God fights against us. When we participate in that The minute we change positions, the minute we become the different character in the the story. Yeah. So this this fullness, and I I think to some degree in a Lutheran language, you say that's the dynamic of being sinner and saint. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, I mean, they they co-inhabit us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not that you could pull it out and I'm 65% this, 35% that. (laughs) It's I am a sinner. I'm claimed by God. Yeah. Both and. You know, they're both and. And until, until we have reached, until the fullness of the kingdom of God that tension is not resolvable from our side, mm. only from God's declaration, I forgive you. You are forgiven. And your victim is restored mm. uh, also, yeah. not just you got a free blank check. Yeah. yeah. Uh, That's beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful, Dick. Well, we... we <laughs> It's a huge topic. Yeah. And we're going to do another session related to this uh, with, with Dick, but... Uh, God is the one who judges. Uh, we're not recruits in that in that yeah. army, um, and we uh, we need to to know our own role in that. Uh, that's what I hear you saying, right? We're, yeah. When we are the oppressed, that that God is coming to to save is a word of of hope. When we are the oppressor, that same word is a word of judgment. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, because yeah. we're going to get upended. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, looking at this broadly like that, too, your question, Kate, about 
societally, we don't seem to be, the bulk of us, at least the three of us sitting here, yes. and the people we represent don't seem to be prepared, prepared to enter into this darkness. What the consequences of that, we enter into it all on an individual basis. Hmm. So cancer, uh, heart attacks, we're not prepared for those darknesses which we bear on an individual basis because we haven't uh, we haven't schooled ourselves in facing this corporately hmm. either. So it ends up being so individual, so isolated. Um, I think we're on, we're not. I think part of looking at this broader darkness can serve as our being better able to uh, address the individual darknesses that we experience as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, th- I mean, we're certainly not going to solve this question in a, <laughs> you know, in a, in a short podcast. Um, but lots of good reflection, lots of good conversation and things to sort of chew on and, and, and think about and pray about. Um, so thank you so much, Dick. Really appreciate yeah, thank that. You, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Enter the Bible podcast. And you can get high quality courses, commentaries, resources, videos, reflections, and much more at the newly relaunched Enter the Bible website at enterthebible.org. Thanks for joining us.